now it's time for the only show that doesn't care about ratings, Witness Radio, with your host, Ryan Muniak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witness Radio, the only show that doesn't care about ratings because our sole purpose is to save souls. On purpose. Go to witnesstalkradio.org for more episodes and syndication options. Today, I have a wonderful privilege, a tremendous honor of talking with one of my heroes in, in the faith. He's been so influential in my spiritual walk, as well as many others. I have Paul Washer here today. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you. I know I already asked you uh, before we started the interview, but just for anyone else who might be wondering, what do we call you when we get to meet you or get to talk to you? (laughs) Call me Paul. That'd be good enough. We really only know the man that we see on YouTube, so I thought it'd be nice to get to know a little bit more about your wife, about your kids, about HeartCry, your ministry. I'm married to uh, Chato, is her name, and she's actually a citizen of Spain and lived most of her life, though, in South America and Peru and Bolivia and Paraguay. And um, I have three kids, Ian, who's 14, uh, Evan, who is 11, soon to be 12, and uh, Rowan, my daughter, who is eight. And we live in Virginia. We live in an old log cabin in the back of uh, a little bit of acreage up on a mountain uh, with deer and bear and, and everything else. And uh, so we live there. Uh, I minister primarily with an organization called the Heart Cry Missionary Society. And we help support indigenous missionaries around the world. And right now, I think we support somewhere around 230 missionaries in about 32 different countries, I believe it is. And then when I'm not administrating all of that, sometimes I have some free time to preach. So that's basically what I do. And you said that you, HeartCry supports indigenous missionaries. For those that aren't familiar with that term, what is an indigenous missionary? An indigenous missionary is someone who is serving among a people group from which they come. For example, uh, someone who is Telugu-speaking in Hyderabad in India. Instead of sending a cross-cultural missionary from the United States or Europe, we would support that missionary who was born there and already serving there. Now, there's been a lot of people in the last probably decade talking a lot about indigenous missions. And that's good because we need to look at that as a viable means of spreading the the gospel. Yet, I've also heard people criticize saying, well, you know, there's no longer any need to send cross-cultural missionaries. That is like missionaries from the United States to Africa or something like that. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Although a new door seems to have opened up in missions where in some ways we can work with indigenous missionaries, there is still a as great a need as ever. I think even a greater need now for cross-cultural missionaries as ever. So I pray that God would raise up so many missionaries from even the United States and Europe to continue going out in Canada, uh, continue going out, reaching the world with the gospel. Why is it that HeartCry focuses on just indigenous missionaries? Why not the cross-cultural? Well, um, first of all, you have to look at the Behind all of it, it's God's providence. When I was in Peru as a cross-cultural missionary, I began to see so many indigenous missionaries that were doing tremendous works. And where it might cost $4,000 a month to put an American on the field, 
uh, some of them lived on $75 a month, and yet were doing unbelievable things that God, that God was doing through them. And um, so I began to look, how could we help the indigenous peoples evangelize and disciple their own peoples? Now, again, I want to say something. Someone will say, wow, you know, I mean, if it costs $250 a month to support an indigenous missionary, then why would we send a North American that may cost um, a lot more than that, 10 times that or 20 times that? And um, I would say, as a person who is involved in indigenous missions, we still need, again, cross-cultural missionaries. And HeartCry has a has a few cross-cultural missionaries that we support. And because there are some areas of the world, see, to make an alliance or a partnership with indigenous missionaries in another country requires that there be a very mature church, a biblical mature indigenous church. And there are so many places in the world where that doesn't exist. And where that doesn't exist, you need cross-cultural missionaries. From what I've heard is that many of the cross-cultural missionaries uh, missionaries that are coming out of America are not from solid biblical churches, and they're bringing, uh, unfortunately, they're bringing heresy to those nations, and it's growing like wildfire. Um, so thank you for for being focused on making sure that your missionaries are biblically based and that they are solid in their doctrine. Looking at your website, the HeartCry website, I noticed that uh, you have missionaries on every continent, but it seems like there's a gaping hole in the United States. Does HeartCry support missionaries in the United States, or do you just leave that up to everybody else? Well, first of all, every mission organization, every church has to recognize its limitations. Um, our focus is on places that are have been unreached or continue to have a church that is quite immature. And it's not that we are avoiding working in the United States or that we feel like, you know, God's judgment is upon the country and there's no hope. It's just that there are so many areas of the world where the gospel's never been preached. And that's kind of our focus. It's our particular calling. And it's just like in a, in a local church. You have people with different giftings and different callings. If everyone was an eye, if everyone was an ear, it simply wouldn't function. And we, we bless the Lord for ministries in the U.S. As a matter of fact, we've been contemplating a few different ministries in the United States just recently because and especially being a minister on college uh, campuses and things like that, you'd recognize that um, the world's coming here. There are many places in the United States where, for example, we can speak freely to Muslims about the gospel of Jesus Christ, where in their country you wouldn't be able to do it. And so uh, we're looking more and more about how do we reach the world as the world comes to the U.S. You know, I think of country, of, of cities like Los Angeles, or Atlanta, or Toronto, Canada, where it is so, you know, diverse, it's so many nations are represented there, that we need to rethink the way that we do global missions. One of the greatest ways to do global missions is to look at the globe that has come, especially to a university area, 
and ask ourselves, you know, here I have this opportunity not to witness to, to simply one people group, but to literally hundreds, if not thousands of people groups, all in one area. That's one of the many things I love about working with Christian Collegian Network and doing campus ministry is because it is so diverse. Me personally, I go out onto the campus streets, so to speak, and, and witness people for the radio show. And there's only been really one time that I've interacted with someone more than once. There's so many different people, so many different backgrounds. So getting back to the, the personal questions, what have been some major influences for you in, in your life and your spiritual walk? The influences in my life, there are some people that everyone would recognize. They're very famous and others that maybe no one would recognize. The greatest, other than the scriptures themselves, the, probably the greatest influence in my life uh, has been George Mueller and the autobiography of George Mueller, in which, you know, as most people know, he raised thousands of orphans. He never uh, made his need known to anyone. He never raised support. He never did anything like that. He just relied upon God in prayer. And when I started Heart Cry many years ago, I decided those would be the principles that we would lay down. And even right now, if you went to my home desk, you would see there's a little volume of the autobiography, a bridge version of the autobiography of George Mueller sitting on my desk. It's about 30-some years old. I bought it new, or was given to me new, and it's just yellow pages and all torn. So his prayer life and his devotional life and his faith in God have been a great influence. There were other people in my younger life, like Leonard Ravenhill, who I had the privilege of seeing preach and talking to and things like that. He was a, a great, great influence in the sense of a man who there was, there was an otherness about him. And it was primarily because of his prayer life, you know. And the, he was one of the old school, old prophets. And uh, so he was a great influence. And then um, a man by the name of Bob Jennings, who many may not know, who was a preacher in Missouri and passed away a few years ago. Charles Leiter, who's a preacher and author today, has been a great influence in my life. Uh, the old guys, though, it would be the Reformers, the Puritans, uh, men like George Whitfield, uh, Jonathan Edwards also, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones are all probably the greatest influences. I'd say my favorite preachers ever, my two favorite preachers would be Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon. They were the greatest and have been, continue to be the greatest influences on my life. I, I hate to admit it, but it was VeggieTales that that turned me on to George Mueller. <laughs> and uh, so if they've done anything good, at least they, they turned me on to George Mueller. Uh, and when I found out about him and how he was doing things, I really started to kind of question, you know, how churches and, and ministries do things or the way that they do them financially. It, and... Personally, I've not seen a lot of what we see today being done in the Bible. And I was wondering if maybe you could give some insight into that um, and, and why why you and HeartCry take the same route as, as George Mueller. Some of the things we do at HeartCry um, are not demanded of the body of Christ as a whole in the Scriptures. For example... 
it, it isn't prohibited in the scriptures to make your needs known to people. It is an excess dependence upon the arm of the flesh would be would be a sin. But to make our needs known to people, to to tell people what we're doing, to even ask people for aid is not necessarily prohibited in scripture. We see Paul raising money for the churches in Jerusalem, things like that. Um informing the believers and encouraging them to give. Um, but what I longed to do was what George Mueller set out to do, was just to simply be an example to people that we can cut ourselves off totally from the arm of the flesh and trust ourselves to God, and He is sufficient. He is sufficient. And in all these years, He has been sufficient. Now, with regard to, to churches today, and especially in the West, we have to understand that we are, in, to some degree, a product of our culture, in that our culture is very pragmatic, very do-it-yourself type of thing, in which, you know, there is a saying that we're trusting in Christ, but then at the same time we are doing all kinds of pragmatic things in order to supposedly achieve the will of God. And we need to be very, very careful. There's always a balance uh, the Christian life, walking in the truth, is like walking on a razor blade and you can fall off either side. And so there are some people, you know, that may seek to say, I'm never going to tell anyone my need and uh, make that uh, conviction of theirs, and that's great, but it, they can't necessarily say it's a biblical conviction in the sense that if you do anything else, it's sin. Then there's other people who are out there constantly seeking to manipulate God's people for money, and that also is the other side of the ditch and is also sin. And so we just need to be careful. We need to confine ourselves to the scriptures. Uh, but I have found this out, that the more we cut ourselves off from the arm of the flesh, the more we are going to see the miraculous hand of God. The term cutting the arm off from the flesh, would you explain that and maybe give us an example of how someone could do that? The arm of the flesh in, in, in the Bible is always referring to a lack of trust in God. And instead of turning to God for help, turning to the aid of men, whether it be turning to the aid of ourselves, our own intellect, or as the nation of Israel was prone to do, turn to the aid of some pagan nation instead of turn to God or to go back to Egypt. or It's, it's always not trusting in God and, and trusting in a human substitute. And so we need to be careful not to do that. And that's what I, I mean by um, not trusting in the arm of the flesh. Um, an example would be, uh, there's a let's say someone has a ministry and there's a financial need, and the first thing they do is start figuring out how they can market that need, how they can figure out how to make it known to as many people as possible, calling people on the phone, manipulating Christians. That's trusting in the arm of the flesh, where... It may be that they should uh, spend a great deal more time in prayer, in intercessory prayer, or fasting, or waiting upon God. You're listening to Witness Radio. Imagine Jesus walking onto your local college campus. What would he say? Would he be like Matthew chapter 9, seeing the people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? And say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. At Christian Collegiate Network, we are sending workers into the harvest. We are training students how to proclaim the glorious gospel, not only in the way that they live their lives, but how to speak 
to the campus community about the gospel. If you want to support our ministry at Christian Collegiate Network by becoming a campus leader or financially, go to changeyourcampus.com. Christian Collegiate Network, changeyourcampus.com. How do you deal with celebrity status? Granted, we we aren't supposed to make celebrities of of pastors and everything, but it happens, and I'm sure you're aware of it. It happens to you quite a bit. So how do you deal with that? How do you battle pride would be a follow-up question to that. Well, the first thing, of course, is to remain in the Word of God. The Word of God is like a mirror, as James tells us, and it shows us who we really are. And it exposes all the vanity of other people's, what other people may say or what we may think about ourselves. And so it's crucial that we always be studying the Word of God and that we be before God in prayer. The other thing is, is just you know who you are. And you know that although the Lord may have used you, he only uses you not because you're the strongest vessel, but because you're the weakest. You're the runt of the litter, and that's why he uses you. And and so that's another thing. Another thing in my family, I'm nothing special. I'm just dad, you know, and and my children and I, I mean, we have a great relationship, my wife and everything, but I'm just dad. I'm just husband. And in my church, you know, I'm not an elder in my church. Um because I don't, I wouldn't have the time to fulfill the role of an elder. And so on Sundays, you know, a lot of times people come, you know, they're coming to Paul Washer's church and they realize, hold it, Paul Washer's not even a leader in this church. As a matter of fact, on Sundays, I basically help set up the tables. And so um, living in a community of people who love me, uh, but see nothing but another member, and then living with, um, of course, my pastors who are so... Uh, mature, um, that although they respect me, um, they're my elders, even though they're much younger than me, they're my elders. And so it's something that, uh, that I always am cautious about and want to respect and of course submit as a member of the church to, to my elders and to the rest of the congregation. So, um, uh, I think Michael Card wrote one time in a song when the world and its charms have done all of its harms. He talks about then coming back home and he finds himself safe, you know, there. And that's the way I am, you know, is is you realize that, uh, wow, it's the kindness of people, the things they may say, sometimes though misguided. Um, it's just that they don't understand that all flesh is just flesh. Another great privilege and a great blessing that the Lord has given me in that area. There are also people who really hate me. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you ever get a big head, you just have to look on the Internet and see all the things, terrible things that people are also saying about me. And someone asked me about that a while back in a radio interview in Detroit. And they said, you know, how do you deal with the fact that that so many people say so many terrible things about you? And I said, well, I said, when Jesus was persecuted by people, those people who persecuted him were always wrong. But when people say things about me, I hope that the great majority of it's wrong. But uh, when people are against us, um, sometimes it's our fault. Things that we said, things that the way we said them. And so it really is humbling to know that there are people out there who really disagree with you and that not always are they wrong. 
There could be something about you that you did, an attitude, a word, a certain sermon that you probably should have done better. And so it's very, very humbling, but very necessary. What advice would you give to new believers? What advice, what words of wisdom would you have for them? First of all, make sure you, you get into a biblical church. Now, every church claims to be biblical, but I'm talking about a church where they are practicing sola scriptura, only the scriptures, in which you have pastors who are not just getting up there and with their personalities and things are able to carry a congregation, but men who are expounding the word of God and men who are in the center of what we would call Christian orthodoxy. Another thing is, nothing will replace private devotion. That you need to start reading the Word and spend your life saturating yourself in the Word of God. Read from Genesis to Revelation, and when you've done that, do it over and over and over again until you die. They said of John Bunyan that if you cut his arm, he would bleed the Bible, and that's the way we need to be. Uh, years ago in Romania, these uh, these Romanian sisters came to my wife and they said, you know, every time we ask you a question, you just give the same answer. You just say that we need to spend more time in the word of God in prayer. Why do you always say that? And my wife said, well, because you need to spend more time in the word of God in prayer. When you think about honestly, even among true believers, how little time is spent renewing our mind in the word, then you begin to see why at times we're so weak. So it would be to that new believer... You need to be in the Word of God. Also, another thing would be surround yourself with godly friends. People who truly, truly are sensitive with regard to sin, who also love the Lord, and, and get in something like that. Yet beware of people who are severe, judgmental, critical, and begin demanding stuff from you that the Scriptures do not demand. Or even leaders who begin to call forth, you know, your allegiance of them. You don't want to be in that kind of church. You want to be in a church where, where there is freedom, where there is truth being preached, where there is mercy, where there is grace. Those are the things you want to look for. Another thing is to realize that um, we have 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of many believers seeking to walk with Christ. Try to come to understand what is true orthodoxy? What is true Christianity? What are those fundamental points that make a true Christian? And live those out without worrying too much about the nuances. Um, again, another thing would be a life of prayer. Um, learn to go to God in every situation. Go to Him. Finally, realize that you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest motivation for seeking to be holy and to living a life that's pleasing to Him. Also, you were redeemed with the purpose of making the glory of God known. Study the Scriptures, be conformed to the image of Christ, and then seek to minister according to the gifts that God has given you. And just always remember that He who began a good work in you will finish it. You had brought up learning the fundamentals of Christianity there are a lot of people that, outside of the fundamentals, talking secondary issues, even farther down the line issues, they will divide over such issues. Not, not just in the sense of going to a Baptist church versus a Presbyterian church, but in, in the sense that they won't even 
acknowledge a person's salvation because they differ on Calvinism or the end times, should we divide over secondary issues or should we consider someone a Christian or a non-Christian because they don't agree with us regarding end times or Calvinism or any other secondary non-fundamental issue of Christianity? That's, of course, a very complex question, but uh, just a few things I'll say about it. Number one is that if we know that someone is truly Christian, that is, they've truly been born again, they truly love the Lord, then we may sit down with them and, and have disagreements over certain things, maybe even strong disagreements, but at the same time be willing to die for that person, to love that person, to serve that person. And when, when we talk about division, I mean real division, what we're saying is that that other person's not a Christian. And we need to be very, very careful about that kind of thing. Now, when we talk about fundamentals, this is very, very important. For example, I would not uh, divide with a person, break fellowship with a person, or something like that, because I'm more Calvinistic and they're more Arminian. I wouldn't rail against their ministry or anything like that. But here's something that I would do. If I saw someone out there, whether they were Calvinist or Arminian, and they were just superficially leading people in prayers. Pray this prayer. You're saved. Don't worry about it. That's it. That's all. You, you bought the tickets. You're going to heaven. Everything like that. Now, I would divide over that. That's not an issue of Calvinism or Arminianism. It's, it's an issue of the gospel. Hold it. You're, you're leading people into a false profession just because they prayed that prayer with you. You're claiming that they're saved now. There's no studying of fruit. There's no, there's no ongoing with the Lord and things like that. So with me, you know, eschatology is extremely important. But when I look in church history, I see that some of the godliest men that everyone recognizes are godly men. They, they differed. So who am I to say, you know, that this is the way, and if you don't follow this way, that you're not Christian? That would be absurd. Yet at the same time, if we're talking about justification of faith or the deity of Jesus Christ, I can say this is the way, and if you don't follow this, you're not Christian. Because those are fundamentals of the faith. But here's what we need to understand. I remember years ago, there, I was in Peru, and some people were uh, some people were saying, "Ah, Paul Washer's charismatic." Can you believe it? They were calling me charismatic, and I said, well, "You know." So I went to them. I said, "You know, why are you missionaries? Why are you saying this?" And they said, "Well, you're going over to this Assemblies of God church, and you're teaching." And it wasn't really Assemblies of God. It was just sort of a, it wasn't anything non-denominational. But they did, you know, do some charismatic things, very charismatic things. And they said, you're going over there. So, so you're, you know, you're ecumenical. You're this, you're that. And I said, listen to me. I said, uh, these people have come down from the mountains of Peru because of the war. They've come down as refugees because of their faith in Christ. They were being persecuted and all kinds of things. Now, they differ with me in some certain issues, not, not on the deity of Christ or salvation by faith or anything else. They differ with me with some some what I would consider secondary issues. Now, they've never been instructed, they've never been taught, and they've asked me to come and teach them more fully to understand the way of Christ. And then I asked them this question. I said, now, 
if if some drunk wife beating pedophile from across the city if i went to that person to witness to them god hating wife beating pedophile and i went to that person and i witnessed to him and tried to show him the truth what would you men say about me and they said well we'd say you're you know doing the work of an evangelist you're doing that's what we should be doing and i said but but i go across the city to try to help a group of Christians who have come down from the mountains because they're persecuted for the cause of Christ, and now you're saying I'm doing something wrong and sinful just because they disagree with me on a few issues? Do you see how crazy that can get? You see, what we got to realize is that we have, we're to love our enemies. So, so we most definitely ought to be loving a brother who may differ with us on some issues. But if we can say with all good conscience, Christ died for this person, this person has trusted in Christ, they are a child of God, then I'm bound to them. And I'm bound to help them. And if we continue in disagreement, I'm not going to hide my disagreement. I'm going to tell them, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong here. Yet at the same time, I'll take a bullet for them. Or if they're hungry, I will give them food. Or if they're naked, I will give them clothing. You see, if they're in prison, I will visit them. So it's it's a balance. But even when we have the strongest disagreement with people, we still ought to demonstrate love. Thank you so much, Paul, for being on the show. It's been a tremendous blessing. Uh, may God bless you in your continued endeavors for the gospel. Thank you. God bless you. Until next time, the fields are ripe for the harvest. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and share your faith. May God bless you. Witness Radio has been brought to you by the Muniac family.